That's a lot of speaking coming up right now. I know. You can do it. He said the sort of stuff that how we do, you know, you can't, you can't not admit to it because everyone wants to learn from it. You've got to, as the leadership, you've got to create the culture where it's not okay to make stupid mistakes, but it is very much okay that if you do make a mistake, you've got to own up to it. I'm Gerardo Poli. I'm Hubert Hemstra, and this is The Vet Vault. Hello, Vet Vaulters. In this episode, our guest gives us some of the best content from his high-value leadership programs, and you are getting it for free, right in your ear holes, right where you are, and we think that you're going to love it. Now, you might be thinking, but I'm not a leader, but you're wrong. Veterinarians are, by default, in leadership positions. And even if you're not in an official leadership role right now, the skills we discuss in this episode are crucial for being a part of a healthy team. Paul Ainsworth is the founding director of the Lincoln Institute, which is a leadership and development organization for veterinarians and veterinary teams. He is a highly sought-after executive coach, facilitator, and keynote presenter. Paul is a graduate of the Australian Defence Force Academy, University of New South Wales, the Royal Military College Duntroon, and was awarded the prestigious Susquehanna Leadership Scholarship by the Australian Graduate School of Management's Executive MBA program. As an infantry officer, Paul has seen international service in five foreign countries, culminating in leading an international military observer unit in one of the world's harshest environments. Paul has led teams out of crossfire, negotiated the release of hostages, reopened international borders that have been closed due to hostile acts, and provided humanitarian relief to communities suffering oppression. On resigning his commission, he was appointed Director of Property at Audi Foods, where he oversaw the rollout of a large number of supermarkets. His appointment as their first director in Australia ensured his place in establishing the culture of one of the world's largest food retailers. Paul has over 30 years of leadership experience across all socioeconomic and geopolitical boundaries, making him highly sought after as an instructor and facilitator to all levels of business. In this episode, Paul tells us some epic stories about leadership success and failures. He talks about fear and the antidote to fear, the art of mindful transitioning as the solution to burnout, having difficult conversations, but more importantly, how to prevent the need to have those difficult conversations in the first place. We discuss the biggest challenges a new leader will face in their role and how to avoid those pitfalls, plus how senior leaders can help new leaders fill those roles successfully, and much, much more. This is one of our most densely packed episodes content-wise, and we encourage you to listen to this one. And if you hear something that makes something click for you in your career or in your life, and you can think of a friend or a colleague who could benefit from what Paul talks about, then please remember to tell them about it and share the links on your social media. I'm still surprised how many people don't even listen to podcasts, so we want you to educate your friends and colleagues to get them to listen. I also want to remind you to check out the show notes on our website. We post a summary of the highlights of each episode, plus links to any of the resources that our guests mention in the episodes on our website, so go and check it out at thevetvault.com. Now, back to our guest, Paul Ainsworth. Paul, thank you so much for making the time to join us on the Vet Vault. I am looking forward to picking your brain till it's bare-boned. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> less in there. 
I don't know if it's possible to do that with Paul. So, yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's lovely to be here. Excellent. Well, I'm going to jump in with, with something, with a question that I like to start with, just to, just to get a story going. Uh, I saw a, a sign on the side of a building the other day that said, bad decisions lead to good stories. And it made me think, I thought that's a, that's a great question. I, I, was, I had to drive along thinking, was that true? What decisions have I made that have led to some, some good stories? Is it, is it true or false? Or, and have you got any, any stories like that, that that fits with that narrative? Look, I, I do have <laughs> got a few stories that are like <laughs> that. I think most of the stories that I have are, that are sort of funny stories um, are ones where, you know, involve pretty major stuff-ups. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, they all sort of tend, you know, that sort of when, you, when you're young, you go back, they're, they're sort of the most uh, um, informative years and, and, and they sort of stick with you. And that's where you make a lot of mistakes as well. So, um, I'm, gosh, what should I, look, I'm happy to share a story. So this story goes back to 1980, I'm aging myself now, 1989. And I was posted to the US Marine Corps in Hawaii. And as part of that posting, um, the, the, where they train in Hawaii is up in the Kahuku Mountain Range. So if you've been to Oahu Island, go to the West Coast where all the huge waves are, the, the mountain range just sort of cascades down to the water there. There's a road along the beach. And uh, if you look to the left, there's a surf. If you look to the right, there's this pretty horrific sort of mountain range. It's beautiful to look at, but uh, the thought of actually going in there is... is um, very steep ridge lines, uh, 700 metre drops, uh, one metre wide uh, passageway up through the jungle. It's very, very tight area. But of course, that's where the Marines train. And to be able to get into the Kahukus, you, you can't get in. Uh, you, you can go by vehicle, but it's a long way in. But uh, they, they always deploy by Black Hawk helicopter. And uh, so I was fairly new to this and I had a troop of soldiers with me. And uh, um, my soldiers are quite young. So they're sort of average age around 22, 23. And uh, the rappelling is across, is above the jungle canopy. So it doesn't feel that high when you're in the helicopter, but when the helicopter is hovering above a 90 foot canopy, you're a hundred feet in the air. So you're, you know, if you're 10 foot above the canopy or 20 foot above the canopy, you're about 100, 110 feet in the air. And uh, you deploy by rope off the skids. So what they do is they strip out all the seats and then you climb in the back and then you, you drop down off the skids by, so it's a rappel. It's like, a, like an abseil, but without a wall, right? So you just drop. And, um, we didn't have time to do much training, and I was there with um, with a with a soldier. I can name names, can't I? Yeah, he doesn't go anywhere, mate. This is no, it's, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's just <between> us, right? <laughs> just us. <laughs> this guy's guy's name was Private Brown, and um, I've never really forgotten Private Brown because I screwed up badly. In fact, I, I think I probably trashed his career, um, or maybe I brought it to a head very quickly. He really struggled. I, I, I'm petrified of heights. So I can't stand them. I've parachuted. I've done all those things that you're meant to do in the army, but I've never, um, I, I've never gotten used to heights. So anyone who tells you you can go parachuting and get over your fear of heights, they're just they're lying to you. What you can do though is you learn to manage it, right? So, and particularly in a leadership role, you kind of got to manage it because if you if you don't, like no one else can. Do, everyone's looking to you, right? So it becomes easier to to handle a situation if everyone's looking at you. And uh, so up we went in these Blackhawks, a bit of training. And then we went up uh, on a, we're on an oval and we started practicing. So a hundred foot up, that's just to give a sense, that's 10 story building. Wow. And you get out of the, 
when, when a Blackhawk's hovering, it's a huge heavy lift helicopter. So it can, it's, its base plate is bulletproof. It's got all this armor on it. And so it's really heavy itself. And it's got a huge lifting capacity. So it's, it's draft when you stand under the skids of a Blackhawk, under the propeller of a Blackhawk, I'm sorry. Particularly when it's hover is huge. And it wants to blow you off the skid. So you step out four at a time. This, I'm going to interrupt. So when you step out, are you tied to anything or are you just stepping Yeah, you've got out? a rope. You've got a carabiner and, and a rope. Um, just like you were stepping off a cliff, you know, like you've got a little, little figure eight in the front. And, um, and, then they, um, and then they say there's two ways you can go. This is, I'm just describing one particular method, and, um, which is what we were doing with these soldiers. And because uh, we had quite a bit of equipment with us. And uh, so we step out on the skid and uh, you go clean skin first of all, then you start to load yourself up with equipment, a pack and a, and a weapon and everything. And uh, he couldn't do it. So the helicopter would go out four at a time. It'd be a dispatch sergeant and true to the US Marines, the dispatch sergeants, they are just absolutely comical. You know, the way they, they're like, they're almost like, you know, those baseball umpires that are just like squatting down and they're just, hands are going everywhere and they're yelling orders. And when you jump out of a helicopter, you've got to go, one person each side at the same time because if two people go on one side of a helicopter even a black hawk it'll pull it over so because you drop about 10 15 feet before the weight the rope takes up the slack and um yeah he wouldn't go and and uh so the helicopter came back down with him in it and uh i said what happened they said hey look he, he can't do it and i said okay brownie you and i are going to go up together so we went up together i got out the skid with him got two guys on the other side the dispatch sergeant gave the one two three go he couldn't do it and finally he just he lost it completely and a few things you know he threw up and and it was it was it was awful it was just awful and it was one of those leadership lessons that you learn very early on um i should have eased him into it you know, because I was almost oblivious to the fact, I, I wasn't oblivious to the fact of how scary it was because I was packing it, right? But, but I was oblivious to the fact that these guys weren't in my shoes being the leader, so I kind of had to do it and I had this impetus to get me across the line. And uh, first time I went parachuting, actually, there's another little story. First time I jumped, um, I, I wanted to go into special forces and I knew I'd have to parachute because it's sort of part of their bread and butter and I, I was so afraid of heights. I was trying to chat up the girl that was sitting next to me in the plane. So that, that's how that's how I, that's how I jumped out of planes the first time. Um, <laughs> which, which, is, up, which which one was the the scariest? Talking to the uh, girl or jumping? Out the <laughs> <laughs> no, the Black Hawk was definitely the hardest. We ended up dating for a while. Actually, she was she was quite nice. But um, yeah. So anyway, so this so the guy couldn't go, and we ended up lowering the, and he had to go back to base, and then he had to fly back to Australia, and and he was discharged. And wow. um, and I thought it was really bad. I mean, he was in a really bad way, and. It was one of those terrible, terrible experiences. And I don't laugh about it now. I still, I still don't laugh about it. But what it reminds me of as a leader is how important it is to, um, you know, just to set those expectations really clearly up front so people know what's, what's going to be happening. I didn't do that very well. And also I could have just done that so differently if I'd just been a little bit less self-focused, and which I, I wasn't because I was so focused on me getting across the line, which was going to be hard enough, let alone everybody else. And I kind of forgot the fact that if we'd gone off a 10 foot wall, then maybe a 20 foot wall. And then, you know, we could have done some stuff that would have helped him. I don't know whether it would have got, got him across the line in the end, but um, anyway, so that's, that's a, that's, that's, a, I got about 10 of them. <laughs> but we won't talk about anything else if you get me started on stories. Oh, well, actually yeah. we could do a whole past, a whole podcast on, 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 on mistakes and stories, but yeah. You, you, you said several things there, um, which I uh, wanted to go back over. Mm -hmm. But you, you talked about the management of fear. And as a leader, you're going to manage your fear. Mm. 
what are you what are your thoughts around that in terms of uh, look one of the one of the strategies you said there was role modeling the way right if you if you put yourself out there as a leader all of a sudden you, you people are watching you, you, you that's one way of developing courage is mm. you step up and start role modeling the way but what are the kind of you know what what what, what would you say to a leader who was tackling fear and and and, and getting around that well, I remember sort of learning. Um, I've since heard it better described as box breathing, but I remember, I remember learning tactical breathing very early on um, to overcome fear. And I remember the first time I jumped out of the back of a Hercules. So, Hercules one where the ramp goes down. Um, funny story here too. Someone sat down on the back of the ramp. So when you go out the back of a Hercules, you, it's a it's a static line jump, right? So you you hook onto the cable. Yeah. You've got a strap that goes to your parachute, which is sitting on your back obviously and um and 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 it it's attached by velcro and and it the velcro is quite strong and so it opens a flap on your on your parachute bag and then a little pilot chute deploys it's about the size of a handkerchief yeah and that drags out the rear, right so so i remember lining up for that and uh because my name is ainsworth of course i was always in the bloody first of everything and um <laughs> it was probably not a bad thing and there were about 60 of us in the back of this herc and, and we were down over jarvis bay in sydney and we're four thousand feet up and when the ramp went down you kind of just look out the back and it's a, it's a funny feeling because i'd already done some private parachuting at that stage so i was kind of okay with it but um i remember i remember tactically breathing at that point so that's where you breathe in hold and that and that holding part is actually um you can feel the physical effect that it has and then i would breathe out and then i hold an external lungs and i've since heard that described by brene brown they call it box breathing in the i don't know the u.s special forces and she's done some training with those guys over there so, so i use that a lot mm. just finish that story so this person you take four steps and the fourth step is in the midair right so the, <laughs> and, and all you do all you do is you lock your feet together and it's like a roller coaster ride. So, you know, one, two, three, and then you just put your feet together and you just slip into the slipstream and, you know, they, they, yeah. you've got a reserve chute on your front, but you've got no time to open it. So, but they've never killed anyone in the military jumping like that, which is, which is kind never of ever in the history of the military. Not at, not at parachute training school down in, down at, um, yeah, Java oh. Space. So, so the training's pretty robust. They're, mm. they're very physical with you and they do a lot of it before you actually get in the plane. But uh, this person uh, sat down. On the end took one two three and sat down and they've got these parachute deployment guys who are just they're, they're the instructors and they're standing at the back they've got a parachute on in case they get sucked out and they're strapped into the back of the heli back of the aircraft and they just literally as um this person's bum hit the back at the bottom of the um ramp uh, it was like a drop kick um his foot hit the small of this person's back <laughs> and booted them out. Because one of the risks, of course, is their parachute deploys in the aircraft. Oh, And wow. that's horrific because that can take people out with it. You know, like anything can happen. It can shred on its way out and drag you out shredded. So um, he wasn't going to have a bar of that. He kind of must have seen the look on this person's face. I'm sure they're quite experienced. So this is going to be a sitter. So as this person sat, he booted them in the back. And, um, I don't think there'd be spinal damage, but I'll tell you what, this person just disappeared out the back. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for own sake. Oh. So, I, I use that, Gerardo. Um, yeah. And I, I think just mind over matter. You know, I think, I think you can over, over, mm. overcome um, the fear. I think sometimes, I think it's heavily linked to expectations. So... Uh, if I think about, you know, the, a lot of the audience that's listening to this, they'll be frightened the first time they do a large dog spay, for example. Mm. Well, it might be one example. You guys would know more than I would. But um, 
you know, the, you've just kind of got to, what are the expectations? And if your boss has set the expectation that everything's got to be absolutely perfect, which of course is a silly thing to do, um, because it breeds this sort of environment where I won't, I won't try um, mm. because I don't want to make a mistake. And the other thing is I've always had a growth mindset. So I don't care if I screw up. I really, well, I do care, but I don't. So I care if it's going to have, you know, a big impact on the business or on somebody else. I definitely don't want to do that. But if it's, if it's just a genuine mistake, it's for me, I, I don't even, I, I don't even spend, I don't spend any time sort of thinking about it other than how can I make sure that doesn't happen again? Mm. So I sort of almost go into everything I do with a very, with a real growth mindset. Mm. Um, I had a boss once who had a really, really <laughs> fixed mindset. Um, you know, the, you know, the sort of the rationale around fixed mindset, My, fixed mindset is where, uh, and you see this in kids a lot where, uh, if they don't think they're going to be able to do it, they won't even try mm. Mm. and they'll cheat to get the outcome because the outcome's so important. Mm-hmm. I wonder, this guy, this guy rose to Lieutenant Colonel in the army, right? So he was my battalion commander. No one liked him. He was so disrespected and, um, well, had no respect from anyone in the battalion. And um, I remember doing the cross-country run and it was kind of expected that the, the junior officers would kind of win it, right? Because you're supposed to be fit and you are very fit. And uh, so the top 10, probably 80% of them, uh, top eight or, uh, uh, are officers often, not always. Um, my platoon sergeant always won it. He was very fit. Um, but my battalion commander cheated. He cut across an oval, so he'd get in the top 10. And, um, yeah, I just... I kind of reflect on these stories and I think back to these people and often it's more the example of what not to do rather than the mm. example of what to do. And then I look at that and think, gosh, yeah. I like that you, the first way of dealing with that fear or anxiety or, or worry about something. So yeah, to me, the surgery one is a very good example. When I was a, a younger vet, uh, that still, still happens. I still get nervous about big surgeries. Um, and I've always tried to focus, and I think lots of people try and focus on the mental game on, yeah, what's the worst that can happen in that. But I like that that first step is to go, well, focus on the physical, because there are those physical things that happen when you when you feel like that, that probably don't do you any good. And I, I actually never never consciously think of that. That's something I'm going to do next time. Next time I get a, a dying dog and come through the door, stop and stop and breathe and then start thinking about it that's excellent I yeah like it. well one of the things we teach you i don't know if we if i've discussed it with you but we we teach this sort of mindful transitioning which is not mine it's i i i watched read some information about it, which i thought was quite cool and that is you know if you think about the cortisol levels or the stress levels that pick up in in, in us as as people throughout the day you know and then eventually we're so wound up by the time we get home those people we care most about we we're not very good with and um and so mindful transitioning is this process of, of exercising mindfulness throughout the course of the day to reduce your cortisol levels so that they don't accumulate because as they build up and build up and build up, you get to a point where you kind of run out, you get sort of compassion fatigue. And, um, uh, and that is to reflect on what has just gone well. So let's say, for example, you deliver a patient outcome. Uh, the, the client just basically says, that's ridiculous. I'm not doing that and storms out, right? So you just think, oh, your stress levels go up, obviously, you're anxious about that. You'd be, be fairly silly if you weren't. But then to be able to uh, reflect on what went well, well, what went well is you stuck to your guns, you delivered a patient, you, you tried to act in the best interest of the patient, the client wasn't having it, but 
Um, ultimately, it didn't end well. It could, you know, you should have done something for the pet. You didn't get a chance to do that. But there was one element that went well, and that is that you did have the confidence to be able to present the best patient treatment plan. And then so, so reflect, then rest, which is the box breathing that I described, and then reset, which is what's the best version of myself I need to take into the next um, into the next consult, the next meeting, when I walk out into reception, how do I need to present myself the best? And mm-hmm. I think it's that last step. You, the box breathing sets you up for it, but it's that last step that's so critical because if I'm getting into the back of a Hercules or getting onto a Blackhawk or whatever, um, I would always say to myself, and I didn't kind of do this consciously, you know, this sort of process of mindfulness probably existed for many years but but i'd never heard in those days but i but i would do that i would say what's the best version of myself i need to be calm i need to be confident if i don't do those things i won't be able to hang on to the rope so it's really important that i do those things anyway um and then i kind of just manage my way through it often breathing my way through it and it, yeah it is powerful that's mm, a that's a it's a real powerful technique um and like it, yeah, as you said, it's mindful mindfulness, but it's but it's like I refer to it as intention setting. So mm. you set the intention for the situation. Mm. Um, and one of the most powerful things that I've done recently is actually look at my day and what's coming up in the day, and then look at the most stressful thing in the day, and then prepare an intention for it now. And I, and then I think about you know like what kind of version of me do I need to be in that situation, and how would that how would that help me then? So then I play. I play a version of it in my head so that I don't then spend the whole entire day thinking about rocking up and I don't know what's going to happen. It's kind of like I've played a a successful version of it in my head and I'm going to turn out, you know, I'm going to turn up as calm, confident and capable or something. Yes. Um, And it really kind of takes the pressure off every morning when I plan my day. I look at that thing and it's like podcast with Paul. It's really stressful, you know, you know, but but what, what version of me, someone light, energetic and, um, kind of present and energized, right? And yep. then, and then the, the, the podcast will happen. Yeah. But, um, hmm. but like, I love what you said there because it really resonates with me. And and it's almost like you can't change what's just happened, but you can change how you step one step further, like the next step that you make. Yeah. It's like what's that expression? You probably you guys might may know this. Um, I only saw it recently in the last couple of years, but it really resonated for me. It says, and it was we don't rise to the level of expectations. We fall to the level of our training mm. as well. And, and I think that's really true as well. So, you know, there's the set yourself up for success, going with the right mindset. Um, but, but at the same time, if you haven't trained, um, you know, whether it be physical training, if it's something really physical or whether it be emotionally training, mentally training, um, spiritually training, if, if, like, if you're not set up for that, it's unlikely you can do it in the moment. I was reflecting on mindfulness the other day and, and the power of mindfulness, but most people think, oh, yeah, it'd be so cool if I was really mindful during this time because I know how good that is when I am mindful. But the reality is that most people don't think about doing that until it's in the moment. Mm. Who thinks about being mindful in the moment? You know, it's like you either are or you aren't. And if, and if you're not, you're not, you know, it's very hard to kind of just turn it on. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So- so, so that word mindful, when I, when I attended your workshop the other day, you, you talked about it as well. Mm. I, I, have, I have sort of mixed feelings about the word. I almost feel like it's got bad marketing. There's, there's, in, in my head, as soon as you say mindful, 
people start thinking hippies and woo woo and mm. you know which um, which i think it's inaccurate uh certainly yeah. that that's how i thought about it for a long time and then uh, again you you with your military background and that it's I, I was almost surprised to hear you talk about it i don't picture no. military guys being into mindfulness and that so i, I was curious what does what does mindfulness mean to you and what does it look like for you in a in a practical term um well, there's this great poem by Robert Hastings called The Station. And in The Station, it was read out at a mate of mine's funeral. And in The Station, about the fourth or fifth stanza of this poem, it says, um, uh, fear of, of tomorrow and regrets, or I'm paraphrasing, but fear of, of, of tomorrow and regrets over yesterday are twin thieves that robbers of today. And I think that sums up mindfulness for me, because mindfulness is about being completely present, whether that's with your kids, your client, your patient. It's not worrying about something that might happen that probably won't happen or fretting over something that just happened that actually doesn't serve you well right now. Um, so mindfulness is about being completely present, which I think some people think, you know, to practice mindfulness, you've kind of got to get into this, this sort of zone where it's completely silent and you're sitting on a mountaintop and you know i i think you can practice mind well i know you can because of friends who do it practice mindfulness on, in the bus on the way into work in the city in sydney you know they they sit on the bus they close their eyes and, and all they do is they just make they close their eyes to sort of minimize the distraction but you can do it with soft eyes as well and uh, and just be completely present so hear the bird outside don't think about the bird or just observe it so you can hear the sound of the bird tweeting or the air conditioning going or the car horn going as it goes past or the car driving past from the truck. You just observe those things. And if you do it for long enough, about 10 minutes a day, I think it's, I think it's probably one of the most powerful things that you can leverage. You wouldn't go into a, you would not go into a marathon run, running event or a half marathon without having trained heavily. If you did, you'd collapse in a heap fairly quickly. Um, it's exactly the same. If you're trying to use the power of the mind to get over a difficult conversation or get, have, have a, have a, get through a tough situation. Um, I once heard a quote actually was on our summit a couple of years ago where, where one of the guest presenters said that, you know, when the body gives up, whether it's when the mind gives up, the body's still at 30% in the tank. I'm a huge believer of that. That's so true because I've experienced that at a physical level where you, you physically think you can't go any further, but you actually can and you just keep going uh, if you have to. And the mind is the same, except I reckon the mind is just so much more powerful. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if you were the one that told me this, Paul, but is, is there a military technique for people? Um, it's like special forces use it or something to remain alert. And it, and it sounds like as if it was, it, there's aspects of it which are mindfulness as well, um, where they they think of their senses so you talked about you know you see what it's like what do you see what i'm seeing this and then what do you hear and they go to like the next level which is like what well, they taste what can they taste what can they smell and then they go um then they go like kind of um uh, what, what do they feel like with their mm -hmm. skin and stuff um mm -hmm. i don't know was, did, did that did we yeah look to... it's not something i think i've i've mentioned but but i i can totally relate to it you know it's I think one of the other things too is particularly with, with fear and, and often fear manifests as anger so that people will lash out, but they're actually fearful. We saw this in COVID recently. Um, and so I think it is really important to be super accurate with our feelings. Um, so 
I'm, I, I don't like the term I'm stressed. It's kind of like, well, what does stressed mean? Are you tired? Are you anxious about what, you know, about the unknown? Are you overwhelmed with information flow? And maybe you need to dial that down a little bit. I mean, we ran a, a series of COVID-19 web, webinars that we've, we're up to our 10th one, I think, or 9th or 10th one this Tuesday, uh, this Wednesday. And um, I've had guest presenters come in and I had the, the uh, director of emergency for two of Sydney's large hospitals, his mate of mine, and he agreed to come on. And, and I just asked him a series of questions, a little bit like this. And, um, and you know, I, I said, how do you deal with the doctors who are just really stressed? And he said, well, the first thing I do is I tell them to stop listening to the news because it actually isn't helpful. You know, you can read about what's going on in the UK, the US, Spain, adds no value to their job or what I, as a director, what he expected them to do when they got into the ED department of this, of this hospital. Um, and he needed them to be focused. So he said, turn it all off because it's all not very helpful. And I think that's a, that's a big part of it as well. It's that recognition that you, you mentioned earlier and, and what you're saying to be able to be clear about your feelings. To, to me, that the biggest benefit or the, let's say the first step or the first win out of, out of mindfulness practice is that ability to recognize yeah. where, where it comes. If, you, if you're not conscious of it, then these things happen and that angry client happens or the fear hits you yeah. and you just give into it. It's just a wave that just washes you along and you right. flail around with it. Yeah. Whereas, whereas if you, and, and as you say, it takes practice before it doesn't just happen because you decide you're going to do it. And I, because for a, when I started my own mindfulness practice for a long time, I was like, well, I don't think I'm getting any benefit from this mm. because it's not something mm. I'm not suddenly Zen calm yeah. and, and nothing ever upsets me. And I think that lots of people have that expectation that that's what they're hoping to achieve. It mm. took me a long time to realize that that's not what you're trying to achieve. It is just that recognizing, Oh, this is what I'm feeling or this is what's happening to me. Do yeah. I really want to feel this way? Uh, okay. Well, yeah. no, it's probably not how I should be. Let me, then we decide how I'm yeah. going to react to this. So the anger is there or the fear is there. Yeah. It's just about recognizing it and then going, okay, wait, what next? Which is, nice. which is, I, I heard a very nice way of putting it as well. The, uh, is on, on Sam Harris. Um, Sam Harris is an, as an app called waking up that I really, really enjoy. And I like his lessons and he had a, a great story about what it should mean for you or what it can do for you. And it's about where you, where your attention goes as well. That, that to me is the biggest bit. So he has, he has a little story that he tells. He says, we all, all have limited time. We're all going to die. Yeah. Uh, he says, so it, your house that you're living in, the house that's your, that is your life is, is burning. It's burning down. Now, if your house is actually burning down and you've got, you've got a minute or two to go in and, and grab something of value and bring it out, you want to concentrate on what you're grabbing. If you just run in thoughtlessly and grab something, you're going to come out with a toaster and yeah. go, oh, shit, that's not what I want. And yeah. He says, that's how you should be with your attention is go, well, your house is burning down, so be very careful where you allocate that attention so you don't grab stuff that's of no value. Yeah, it's that process, isn't it, of, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of Sam Harris as well, but it's that process of observing things. Uh, but I'm, I'm also, um, I'm a big practical kind of person. Like, I want to know how you're going to do it. So uh, we have two dogs. And they're beautiful dogs, two poodles. I love them to death. But uh, if anyone comes down the driveway, they go ballistic. And they, 
and they've got this really, I don't know whether I've got gunner's ear too, too long in the infantry, but it just cuts straight through me and, and it, it frightens me. You know, when they bark, it's sort of like it's, it's this sort of uh, jolt. And um, so I decided to use that as my thing to try and build a better relationship with my responses. So in other words, trying to basically get on top of my response. Because if you think about all the different situations throughout the day that wind you up, it's very difficult when you're in a wound up stage to kind of go, oh, I think I should be Zen right now. Or, you know, I need to try and find the best version of myself. Bullshit. Like you're just going to react. Right? Mm. And some people react anger, some cry, some, you know, um, whereas with the dogs barked, I just got so angry. And I'd yell at the dogs and say, stop bloody barking. You know, like this is crazy. And then I'd get up and by the time I got, I'd, by the time I got to the door, they're, they're still yapping away and it's getting me more and more wound up. So I decided that that was going to be my focus was when the dog was barking, right? So as soon as the bark went off, that was going to be my, that was going to be my trigger to kind of go, okay, breathe. Like just, just observe rather than react, you know, mm -hmm. and it worked. It's unbelievable. I didn't think it would work. It worked almost like within a day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now they bark, I get this amygdala response, that sort of that, you know, that medieval response that you kind of just, the stimulant yeah. is just so great. But now I build in enough time, it's only two or three seconds, for me to choose my response. And by the time I've done that, they're barking away like they always were. It's almost like I don't hear it now. Mm. And, of course, it changes everything, it changes, changes everything. The family's response and they're sitting in the living room and the dogs bark. And, yeah, so you can do it. I would suggest find one thing that triggers you. Mm. And when it happens, use that as your little, as your little reminder. And just practice that. And I think you can then sort of, that can then, you know, that's the thin edge of the wedge. I, think. I, I do the same thing with my kids. I have young kids, <laughs> except yeah. that they still eventually get <laughs> Up to a point, I'm like, I don't want to get angry. I don't need to, at that point, just go, ah! <laughs> just yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. We got two, I got two university students at home now because of course colleges are closed and um, the 21 year old, she's doing law. She's a very sharp woman and she's focused and studying hard. My son who's doing mechanical engineering. He honestly kills me. He just kills me. He doesn't get out of bed till 11 o'clock. He's on his phone the whole time. I literally want to shove the phone down his throat. And we have these fairly robust conversations. But you can't have those conversations with the kids. You know, you know, Emily came into my office the other day and she sat there and said, Dad, are you okay? I said, oh, just, Ben just winds me up. I get so frustrated with him. You know, I just wish he would just be a bit more mature. Go and get a job, you know, do something. And he's got a job, but, you know, go and get two jobs. Just get busier. You know, like if you're going to be in bed at 11 o'clock in the morning, what are you doing, you know? And, and uh, it was so good, Emily, just sitting here, just talking me through it. Because, of course, she talked me to a point where I've sort of got to go into level of acceptance. So they're, they're a, they're a double-edged sword, aren't they, kids? And as older, <laughs> if you're watching this and you've got young kids, it just gets worse. <laughs> oh, thank you. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> Paul, Paul, like when you're talking about your daughter coming through and kind of or somewhat even, I don't know, coaching you or something like that, mm -hmm. but what, what, just might maybe think of, Young vets, young vets, um, um, and I, I, I think it's it's somehow we don't necessarily set them up for failure, but they they're not really skilled in the things that you and I believe they should be skilled in. You know, they they, they call them soft skills, but I think that that's really just demeaning that one of the most powerful skills that they people should develop. Yeah. Um, and um, so they graduate from university, they're put in positions of decision making and so forth, and they, they don't even realize, but they're in leadership positions straight from the start. 
You know, they're making life and death decisions. They get asked about, um, you know, should we order this drug, not drug? Um, someone says that nurse is having like, is having an argument. Can you go help sort that out? And like, so we don't train them in any kind of like managerial leadership mm. kind of performance strategies and things. But how would you, how would you, let's say you, you were stepping into a new role, into a new position. What kind of tips or strategies do you think, or what kind of advice would you provide someone who is stepping into, I suppose, stepping into leadership? Well, look, I think the first thing that's, that I'll just say it as it kind of hits, hits my mind, the first thing that I think of, Gerardo, is I think most people go into a leadership role thinking they're meant to know everything. Mm. And I think that's really dangerous. Um, most junior leaders don't know everything and they need to very quickly learn the art of deference, which I know we've talked about on programs before, but the art of deference, the best way to describe it is the way, the way you would communicate with your grandmother, you know, you you might know more than she knows but you wouldn't tell her that so you would never put your grandmother in her place you would ask what she thought about something and essentially even though um and it's, it's sort of that's probably where the where the analogy ends because she's not junior to you but i think it's perfectly acceptable if you've been promoted into a position you've got an older nurse for example so you're a how old would you be, Gerardo? 23, 24 as a vet, graduating vet? Yeah, yeah. And you've got a 34, 40-year-old nurse that's been there forever. Mm. That's a bit like going into a battalion, an infantry battalion with a couple of old sergeants and warrant officers who literally think the Vietnam War is still going on. You know, like these guys are just, they are brutal and they look 10 times your age and they're very suspicious of you as a junior leader. Um and sometimes they will just say to you, sir, come over here, get back in your box. And they'll, ref they'll respectfully refer to you as sir, even though you're, and you are their, <laughs> their boss. But it's kind of like, if I ever see that again, I'll take you around the back of the shed kind of thing. <laughs> oh, are, you, are you allowed to say that? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a baptism by fire. But, but I think when you go into a veterinary hospital, you don't have to know everything and to show deference. So, so for example, to go to a senior nurse and say, look, I've got some thoughts around something I'd like to share with the rest of the team. Before I do that, can I get your thoughts on that? Mm. I think it's a tremendously powerful thing to do to build trust with that person. You don't, you're not sucking up to them. You're simply showing the respect for the fact that they've been there for such a long time. They probably have already seen it, you know, mm. So many different ways delivered by different people and, and they've seen what's worked and what hasn't worked. So just ask them. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing is you don't have to know everything in a show deference. Um, the second thing is, um, uh, you, know, that, you know, I don't know if you remember, Gerard, the, the acronym FAT. We talked mm. about this list program. Um, so it's, it's a fallacy that people wake up in the morning, think I'm going to be belligerent today. The assumption needs to be that everybody's trying their best. Mm. And the truth is that if they're not meeting my expectations, it's probably because I haven't been clear enough. Mm. And I think that's so true, particularly around behavioural um, things. So, you know, we don't accept the fact that we talk about each other behind their backs and it's kind of like, well, you know, that should be a given. Mm. Well, no, it's not a given. For a lot of people, it's not. The, mm. the example their parents set was not that. The example that they've watched under prior leadership is not that. So for them, actually, no, this is the way we do things. We do talk about each other. It's, how, it's my little escape valve and my little relief valve. And I can have a good session about somebody and I feel, I think I feel better about it after I've got it off my chest to somebody else. Well, the reality is you probably do feel better after the chest, but it's just a, it's not the right approach. Mm. Now, you might know that because you're well-educated as a vet. 
uh, you know, on the IQ spectrum, you're, you're at the top end of that. So you kind of intuitively get the fact that these things shouldn't take place. Most people do kind of get it, but if you're not clear on those things, then that can be a problem. And of course, you know, difficult conversations are only difficult because we haven't had a confident conversation earlier. Mm. Um, so uh, what I mean by that? Um, so you didn't set the clear expectation at the start. So you're potentially yeah. in that they're not doing it because they just... They, you know, they're not they're not smart, or they're just dumb, or not. No, that's that's pretty critical, right? But you know, in a way, you put down their failures because of the fact that something's wrong with them. When in a, in a sense, you didn't set the the, the right standard. Yeah. Didn't. Set it's the like right. values, you know, like like we have values in the practice, and they're often a glossy poster that looks all very nice, and it's often in reception, so everyone can read it. That comes, and I actually, you know, I read those values, and a lot of them are what I call core values, honesty, integrity, um, trustworthiness. I mean, you know, knock me over with a feather. Of course, you're going to have those as values. They're kind of like those things that you have to have. Mm. But then there are other values like collaboration or, uh, you know, um, don't talk about each other behind their back or something like that. That's mm. it's a very unsophisticated way of saying that. But I think, I think it's really important that those conversations around those values be had on a regular basis, but not when you're getting someone in trouble. It's too late. Mm. That's, a, that's a difficult conversation to have. And sometimes I will get a call as a coach where they'll ring me and say, Paul, I don't know how to have this conversation. And I'll say, well, I don't know how you have it either. Mm. Because I don't, I don't think you've been clear enough. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, and, and probably they're going to think you're a hypocrite because, mm. you know, maybe it's someone turning up late and, you occasionally turn up late, you know, because life gets in the way. So I think it's really important to have these conversations on a on a really regular basis and pull the butcher's paper off the wall and sit it in the middle of the meeting room and say, what do we think about collaboration? But also get the bullet points down around a collaboration and write them on the butcher's paper. You know, collaboration for a receptionist means that the vet won't send a client out to the reception without having first told them what the bill is. Mm. Um, so they're not hearing it from the receptionist the first time when they ask for the credit card number. Mm. Um, collaboration for a vet is between a vet and a nurse is if you're going to place a drug order and the drug is on back order, don't just drop in another anaesthetic. Like mm. tell me what it is because I may not want to use that anaesthetic. Mm. So that's collaboration for a vet. And so if you go around the practice, there's a whole host of things that are um, important to different people in the practice for different reasons. And I'd get all those down as, you know, what does collaboration mean to you? Get half a dozen little statements down that's full of spelling mistakes and it's full of grammatical errors because it actually doesn't matter, doesn't matter at all that it's got those mistakes. In fact, it's better to have those mistakes because then as the leader, I can say, you said that's what collaboration... I didn't say that was what collaboration was. You said it was. Mm. So we can talk about this in a confident way and, and I would suggest as a new leader, if you're ever going to call anyone on, you know, have that conversation, you need to, you need to be one that's self-effacing. You need to be the one that says, I made a mistake this week. I'd like to share that. I'd like to pull off collaboration and talk about it because I think I messed up badly this week. Mm. Um, and I'd like to, A, declare that. I'd like to get that on the table. I'd like to share it so no one else makes the same mistake. The Air Force have this as a policy. It's, it's, it's really profound. They, they have confident conversations the whole time so there's never any difficult conversations. Uh, of course, there's always some diffi really difficult ones, but I could tell you a story. It's a bit long, actually. But Shorty was a mate of mine. He's a very tall guy. And um, 
he was an F-111 pilot, which is a long-range bomber. And uh, we were doing a rain shoot down in Pakapanyal, and it was the it was we had a huge crowd, about four thousand people. I was sort of dug in at the front of the crowd. I was firing an anti-tank missile. He and his was the arousal, right? So he he's got twenty-four five hundred pound bombs that he's dropping on a target. He missed the target by eight kilometres. <laughs> he's laser guided, right? <laughs> So laser means that, you know, you can put these things through a car. Anyways, he, missed <laughs> he just missed the Hume Highway. It was never reported. 1992, you can look it up and check, <laughs> check your archives. Um, 91 or 92. Yeah, it took out a whole forest regrowth. Anyway, he, he, he sort of dropped these bombs and went up to about 45, 50,000 feet and then headed back to Amberley up in Queensland. And on his way back, the squadron commander got on the phone and said, Shorty, when you get back, you need to come and see me. And like this is quite late at night by this stage. I'm eight o'clock at night. It was it was a dusk sort of thing, and um, yeah, when he got back, he was um, called in, and I said, and I caught up with him. And I said, mate, what happened? And he told me, and it wasn't his fault. The navigator put in the wrong data, but I said, did you get in trouble? And he said, no. Why would I get in trouble? I said, well, mate, a couple of things. Um, <laughs> A big a big fire has gone through the forest. You know, yeah. <laughs> forest doesn't exist. The Hume Highway only just exists. That was a coincidence. Um, so there's a few things that crossed my mind. Embarrassment. And um, and he said, oh, no, 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 no. I've got, got, got in trouble. No one admit to anything. He said the sort of stuff that how we do, you know, you can't, you can't not admit to it because everyone wants to learn from it. So I think that's, that's, there's some really powerful lessons that can come from there. But you've got to, as the leadership, you've got to create the culture. Mm. where it's not okay to make stupid mistakes, but it is very much okay that if you do make a mistake, you've got to own up to it. And so therefore, if you're going to talk about values and have a confident conversation early, make it your story, never target another vet or another team member and embarrass them. Mm. Um, if it does need to be raised, make it something that you did. Mm. And even if you did it years ago when you first graduated or something, but mm. make it about what you do. Um, so I, that's, I, think, I think that's important. I, I love hearing about these things, but what, what gets me or what I really struggle with as a, as a leader is when to have these conversations. Because I know that I should be having them and I've, I have this idea of how you want to lead people. But the practicality of, in a vet hospital of, of actually sitting down or being somewhere where you can have these conversations. How, how do you coach your teams through this? What, do you, what are your suggestions to make it happen? Well, the first thing is induction. Indu you know, if we look at induction, it's usually the, sort of the mechanics of the role. Mm. And induction's got to be a lot more about that, a lot more around behaviour. Most of the practices I work with don't have clinical problems. They've got some of the odd thing, but you know, they, maybe they don't share it with me because I wouldn't know what they're talking about anyway. But most of it's not clinical. Uh, it's not sort of the mechanics of running the hospital. Sometimes it is. The roster's hard, and but it's the roster's not hard. It's people's attitude towards the roster that's a problem, or it's people saying, "I can't work on you know this Saturday because I've got this." but they don't have the personal accountability to go and find a replacement. They just dump it back on the practice manager or the head nurse and say, you've got to find a replacement for me. And so it, it always goes back to the behavioural aspects. And I think induction's a great time to have these conversations because it's kind of the honeymoon period. You know, mm. the, you can't go wrong because I haven't been with you long enough to have made these mistakes. So, Paul, we don't tolerate people talking about each other behind their back. And I go, oh, couldn't agree more. You know, <laughs> I could not agree. Like, I hate that. You say, okay, so maybe you could share some experiences where you've seen it happen in the past. Mm. You know, and like, I want to I go deeper on that with you 
And this is the conversations we're going to have while we walk around the clinic in that first month. I'm going to be pulling you out and I'm going to just be drilling all of these really important behavioral things in like, so what does personal accountability mean to you? Mm. And you say, oh, well, you know, take responsibility for stuff. I go, okay, well, look, here we teach, there's a little bit more to it than that. But here it's about seeing everything. And we talk about, you know, the four steps of accountability, but it's not just owning it. It's seeing what you're owning as well, because often we place the drug order, the drug, that's probably wrong for a junior person, but we place the drug order, the drugs are on back order. So we get some other random drug that we wouldn't normally use. Uh, If we don't see the implications of that by going and then briefing all of the vets, for example, on the fact that we've got this drug on back order and it's not coming until the end of the week, um, yeah, you're sure you can own it all you like and you can just get in trouble all the time for having done the wrong thing. You can be the person with the highest level of ownership ever, but you've got to see beyond that and say, well, if we're constantly having, if you're constantly having to own something, we need to see beyond that. And Mm -hmm. so, so just even personal accountability is super important. Um, and I would be drawing out examples, um, highlighting, um, times and, and during team meetings, I would, I would be going through one value every team meeting, where are we winning and where have we still got more work to do? Mm. And let's have a look at this bullet point list and what on that list still makes sense to us. What do we need to add to the list? And if I was being stonewalled, which often happens, you know, you sit in a team meeting and you kind of just put this out there and everyone just kind of looks at you and no one wants to be the first person to say anything, mm. then you've got to do the facilitator trick, right? So <laughs> this, this is the facilitator trick when you don't know the answer to a question. You say, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> so you probably heard me say that a number of times, right? But, oh, it's even, it's um, even better when, when they don't know. You go, well, talk to your friend. Yeah, exactly. And then see what you guys come back and then we'll have a chat. And Exactly. Then- and then you bring a back plan. You said, turn to the person next to you and have a conversation. You can't hide with the person next to you. Mm. you gotta, like you, one of you has got to open your mouth. <laughs> and so you can even do it in Zoom, I've discovered. Yeah. Um, go into rooms. Um, but I, so I think that's, that's um, an important um, uh, thing to do is, okay. is, is be constantly reflecting on these things and don't accept everyone just looking at you and expecting you to have the answer. Mm. Mm. Um, Excellent. Oh, actually, Paul, you you started off the first two steps of accountability, see it, own it, and then the last two for those people who haven't heard the four. Oh, sure. Yes. Well, you've got to find a solution. So you've got to solve it. Mm. So you've got to see everything that's associated with it, the implications on the team, the implications for the patients, the clients. It's a great place to start those three. If you, if you can't think of three things, think of those three because they're the most, you know, they're, they're the three stakeholders, aren't they? The client, the patient and the rest of the team. Mm. Um, own it is tying yourself to the outcome and recognising the fact that if you don't do anything about it, you know, what is, if you're not part of the, if you're not part of, if you don't make yourself part of the problem, you won't be part of the solution. That's the expression I like to use. So you kind of, you've got to, You've got to dive in and say, well, what part of this is, is, is me? Like, how am I contributing to this problem? That's the, someone who owns it just immediately goes to there and just after they've sort of seen what they need to see. And then the, then the solve it is, um, is coming up with a solution. Um, often you won't have the solution, but you'll have all the right questions to ask. Um, and you've got to find a solution, even if, because there's nothing worse than inertia. You've got to keep going. Um, so find a solution, even if it won't, it'll never be the final mm-hmm. solution. <laughs> Sorry, good, is it? Um, 
but um, it'll never, and you can Google final solution if you don't know what it is. <laughs> 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 you, you use with me on that. Um, so, you, so it'll never be the final solution, but, it won't, it, it, but you know, the, at least you've made some decision. And the last one is do it. Mm. So, so see it, own it, solve it, do it. Doing it, I, I think practice owners generally see most things. They're pretty strong in ownership. They come to solutions. They just don't do it. Mm. especially stuff without a deadline. They just sit on it forever, mm. you know. I've got practice owners that I've worked with for years who will say to me, I can't get our profitability any higher and, and efficiency and the nurses, the vets are all um, cranky. And, and, and you sort of go in and have a look at the infrastructure that's there and it's the practice manager. It's not the right person for the job. And you sort of say, well, when are you going to see it, you know, and they, 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 they just, they refuse to see it or they do see it and, and they kind of own it. They go, yep, it's me, but I'm not prepared to get rid of this person. Mm. Um, or now's not, or they're, or they're lovely, you know, like lovely's great when a team mm. first starts, but lovely won't cut it if it's frustrating everybody else in the practice because they don't have the core talents for the role. And eventually, eventually they will do something about it, but sometimes it can take years for them to do something. Procrastination mm. is the biggest We've got a bit of procrastinators in, in as a, I think, a little bit, but um, procrastination is a big killer for personal, you know, practice owners who say, I'm personally accountable, are you really? And they go, well, yep, I, you know, I own it and I take res full responsibility and, and I come to decisions and, and then I look at some of the stuff that does non-deadline related and they haven't done anything on it. So they're not really personally accountable. Like you've got to go the whole way and either create a false deadline or my big one, because I'm a bit of a procrastinator, what I like to do is I like to actually delegate <laughs> and make somebody else accountable for it, um, whether it be my accountant, uh, whether it be a lawyer uh, or some other form of external consultant, external support. So you know that, that Jack Welch expression, hire people who are smarter than you. Mm. That's me. That's me. Um, I learned it the hard way. But... Um, I'm, I've never felt intimidated by being surrounded by people who are smarter than me, but I, I don't sleep well at night and I get very stressed when I'm surrounded by people who aren't smarter than me. I, I don't like that at all. Um, and I've done that with Lincoln. Every person at Lincoln is smarter than me in their, in their respective areas of the business. As a junior leader, just going back to your first question, I would be really honing in on who has what talent around me that I can tap into. And if that's a nurse that's a great influencer because they're just cool and everybody likes them, then I would be tapping into that talent and I'd, make, I'd have them part of my guiding coalition. <laughs> yeah. one, one thing I've found that um, helps keep me accountable, because I like the whole, de the whole idea of setting deadlines and, and um, also then like sharing the, the, the responsibility or sharing responsibility, delegating it if you know, possible, but uh, like I, I start declaring it as something and I put my ego on the line. It's like, this is something I want to do. And like, I'll keep it as this kind of like, so if, if I'm scared of doing it, procrastinating it because I know I haven't done it in ages, then what I'll do is I'll start sharing it. And all of a sudden I start sharing with more people and more and more people. And I'm like, oh no, shit, I really have to do it now because I've told everyone that I'm going to freaking do this thing. And yes. it's been one of the, the things that have been the biggest push and drive to completing projects that are big and scary is the fact that everyone knows I'm doing it. And if I don't do it, yes, it, my ego is on the line. Yes. I, I heard an interesting one though. Um, Cause that, that's a, that's a, a well-described method of, of getting yourself to do something. And then I heard a, a 
psychological study that said it can backfire for some people. For some people, telling others that I'm going to do this, let's say I want to write an article or I decide I'm going to start a podcast. And, um, yeah. and then I start telling people about it. A part of my brain goes, all right, I've started doing something about it because yeah. I'm telling people about it. And your, and your brain goes, yep, that, is, that was an action. I've done it. And then people stop there because they go, yeah, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And actually, they just talk about it. You're not very clear then in what you're sharing. You're, you're going to be really clear. And you're, look, I'm going to do this by then. Make yep. you, declare your smart goal to them, mate. Look, one of the other things I'll share, Gerardo, is, um, and, and this is something I discovered on the Chrysalis program, because we run that program for, for junior leaders. And so it's head nurses, senior nurses who are showing great potential, vets. And um, one of the things I say there is most people get quite stressed around now leading, particularly if they're promoted within their peer group. So they're now, they've been sort of pulled out as the person who's a better nurse than anyone else. Mm. Half the nurses are sitting there going, well, hang on a second, like, you know, or maybe the vets sort of uh, have got this really strong sense of, of um, faking it till they make it and, and um, don't feel as though they've, you know, they're, they're, what's, that, what's that called? They've got that, that sort of syndrome where they feel imposter as Imposter syndrome. Yeah, imposter syndrome, exactly. And I think, I think what's, what's, what's really important is recognising the fact that the first level of leadership, and maybe a level of acceptance around this can be helpful, the first level of leadership is the hardest level. Um, and, and the reason why, and I'll, I'll talk about it from a nurse perspective promoted, because you often see this with junior leaders going into a, being promoted, is that they feel as though if someone's not doing what they're meant to be doing, they want to jump back in and do it the correct way. Mm. And so, but that's not their job anymore. Their job is to lead other people to get it to the point where it's the correct way. And mm. the two are paradoxical because, or juxtaposed, because if I, if I say get promoted and, and it's because I'm good at what I do pretty typically, right? So I'm the best nurse. So I get promoted to nurse. I, I feel as though management is looking at me going, well, that's the standard that now everybody has to have. Mm. And that's simply not the case. People who have been in a senior leadership role don't look at their junior leaders and, and have that expectation. What they do is they look at their junior leaders and say, I was able to hold you accountable to do this job as a nurse and you did a great job. I now want you to start holding everyone. And I am full recognition that the whole team weren't like that. So my expectation of you is that you will now lead your team to doing a good job. We know that people don't do a good job with them in micromanaged. We know they don't do a good job. I never learn mastery if they're pulled out and sort of pushed to one side and my boss jumps in over the top of me and does it for me every time I'm slightly wrong. So I think another piece of advice I would give anyone going into a practice is just um, you can have a standard that you want to work to, but it's very important you develop a left and right of arc. Right? It's, a, it's a military expression. Some people are going to produce a six trying their guts out and some people will produce a nine or an eight or nine not trying very hard at all. Both of, those are un, both of those are acceptable and unacceptable at the same time. The six out of ten is not acceptable, but it's also not acceptable to two, two wrongs don't make a right. It's not acceptable for you to jump in over the top of that six. The best thing to do is coach that person through and say, how do you think that went? What do you think you'd do differently if you had another chance, another, had another crack at it? let them answer the question and then say, okay, do you want to have another go? 
I, look, I'd love to have another go. Okay, so let, let's, let's do that. And how are you going to approach it slightly differently? So that's a six out of 10 person. And then the nine out of 10 person say, how do you think that went? They say, oh, it was really easy. I say, well, if it was so easy, why didn't we do better? So mm-hmm. what would you do differently in order to be able to improve the outcome? And so in both instances, I am going to be coaching that person and encouraging that person to step up. And one of the things I say to Chrysalis people is go and buy a clipboard because if you're not busy, find something to be busy with, but don't make yourself busy by doing their job. That used to be your job and it's now not. The other thing I think is super important too is that uh, is the languages that you speak. So there are four languages that you can speak when you're in a leadership role and they range from directing all the way through to empowering. And directing is what the language you speak when someone doesn't know how to do something. So their competency level is very low. Typical will be induction. I'm guessing you know how to wear your uniform, but let me be super clear about how we wear the uniform here. Mm. This is day one, right? Um, and, and, and that could go, you know, this is how we put in a catheter. Watch what I do, and then I want you to do what I, what I did, okay? So that's very directing in style when the competency level's low. When the competency level's high is empower them and just essentially you've got to be their support person. You know, you just give them, give them their boundaries and just let them get on with their job. And, you know, if you've got a, a nurse that's promoted to a senior nurse role and they're intimidated talking to their mate who is also a senior nurse, they're only intimidated because they feel for some reason they've got to boss them around. No, they don't. They just need to be that support person for them. They've got to kind of take care of them and just say, you know, Gerardo, look, you may or may not be aware, but we're down a nurse today. What can I do to support you mm. in, in your function as a nurse? And, and, and so you're, you don't, I'm not bossing Gerardo around. If I boss Gerardo around, he would just look at me as if to say, who the hell do you think you are? You know, mm. You were, we were mates last week. You got promoted, Paul. Well, mate, I'm sorry, but you're no smarter than me. You know better than me. You know as well as I do. I could have got that job as well. You've just been here a year longer or whatever. Mm. So don't put yourself in that situation. Get curious. Like just be curious about what other people already know and how you can tap into those resources, tap into that resource. I think that's a, very important for a junior leader. So almost going, referring back to the act of deference to your, to your colleagues. Yeah. yeah. So, so as a vet or a practice owner or a team leader, how do you facilitate that? How do you make sure it happens that way? So you've got, let's, talk, let's stick with the example of the nurse. So now I'm the veterinarian, I'm promoting nurse to senior nurse. What do I do or how am I going to stuff it up to make sure that fails? Look, it's a great point. And I would be saying, look, I've just promoted, let's use you guys and just say, um, Hugh, I've just promoted uh, Gerardo to uh, the senior nurse role. These are the expectations I have of Gerardo. Uh, I think you and your colleagues need to be aware that these are the expectations I have of him. I've asked him not to step back in and jump in every time he sees something going awry. I've told him that he is to be challenging you constantly and asking you more questions than telling you what to do because essentially you're all experienced nurses and you know what to do. So Gerardo will be as much as anything a support person for you, um, but I expect you to support him. I expect you not to undermine him and I, and I will take a very dim view of anybody who actively t- decides to um, you know, undermine his, his, his new position. It's a tough gig that he's gone into 
and he needs everybody's support, not only my support as his boss, but also your support as those people who he will be required to come back to me and justify it's an effective team. Mm. You know, so, and again, there's a confident conversation. I'm not going to sort of, you know, grab someone and say, you know, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? Because mm. it, it becomes, that's a very, that's a difficult conversation. I'd much rather have the confident one up front. Because everyone in that confident conversation will go, oh, you're absolutely right, Paul, and good on you, Gerardo. You know, like the people are people are generally nice like that, I think. Mm. So it's about setting, setting the expectations from the start. I, yeah. I, I like those words. I, you could, I could actually just edit that little bit of soundbite and say, well, this is exactly what you need to say when, you, when you're in that role. <laughs> no, that, 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 was, that was perfect. It was like a script. The script oh. that, you, that you need. That's the but conversation like, you many, need to have. How many, like, I can't say that I've had that conversation before. You know what I mean? No, and that's why I'm asking because I, oh. I, I, I know that I don't do this well. Paul, you talked earlier about uh, being the junior officer and being put in your place by, by, by the senior guys. I, I can imagine, I'm just trying to picture life in the military, that, it, that there's going to be a lot of conflict, a lot of strong personalities, a lot of testosterone yeah. floating around. Um, I'd imagine as a, as a leader in the military, you need to be very skillful at, at dealing with conflict. Uh, are there parallels that you can draw from that to veterinary practice? Also often a stressful situation, often strong personalities. How, what have you learned about conflict that we can apply in, in our job? Um, direct parallels are quite hard um, because the conflict is often very different. But I, I think it's sort of, probably the first thing to do would be apply a level of, apply a filter as to what is the conflict is the conflict politics or is the conflict genuine pushback on something that is uh, not right you know and, and should be addressed so let's say for example i went in and yelled at all the nurses right mm. and then someone came up to me and said paul you can't speak to the nurses like that where the hell do you get off Mm. So it's a really like a a response that kind of knocks me off my kilter. Um, I could take the view that that person was being political with me or I could take the view that that person had something really genuine that they needed to express. And I think the mark of someone with high EQ or emotional intelligence is the person who can take a more objective opinion of of their own performance and very quickly ascertain that, you know, I've got a trusting relationship with this person. You know, this practice manager would not have just literally, I must have really screwed up when I went in and spoke to the nurses then. I didn't realise I came across like that, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we do know around self-awareness that we're only about 40% accurate as to we come across. It's a biological issue. It's related to the fact that we can't retain everything in our conscious mind. So a lot of things are happening unconsciously, hand movements, hand gestures, arms folded, you know, dare I say, um, you know, that sort of resting cranky face. Um, you don't often know that. Soldiers used to say to me, what's wrong, boss? And I'd go, nothing. Why? And they'd say, why do you look so angry? I'd say, well, I wasn't angry until you told me that I looked angry. <laughs> but now I'm angry. <laughs> but, but now you've given me off. It's like, why are you here? Go and do something. Like, haven't you got something to do? So I think being very objective about yourself is a mark of, of emotional intelligence and being willing to be able to step back and, and accept the fact that not all conflict is bad conflict. In fact, most conflict in an organisation 
can be spun around. If you don't get defensive, defensiveness is the biggest killer in a relationship. As soon as you're defensive, you your amygdala kicks in, um, it's fight or flight. Uh, you and if and if you're saying something to me, Hugh, that's problematic, and I'm defensive. Mm. Only thing I will be looking for in what you're saying, and this is something I pulled out of a podcast not that long ago, um, the only thing that you will be, I will be thinking about you is what you're saying that is wrong. Mm-hmm. I won't hear anything that I agree with. I will just be trying to find holes in what you're saying to be able to defend my position. And that's, that's what we do as a species. You know, we, we're very good at getting into a defensive posture and we, we naturally go there. So I think being really mindful of... Um, of not getting defensive, trying to be objective, go to the balcony, have a look down, build it, having a trusting relationship with somebody so that you can actually, you know, work it through. And, and let's say, for example, I didn't have a strong trusting relationship with you. You might say something to me that grates on me. Um, we have this expression in the military called withdraw to ground of your own choosing. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would not engage with you at that point. I would go to Gerardo and I'd say, Gerardo just said this to me. Do you agree with him? And Gerardo would say, well, Paul, you do come across like that sometimes. Or, yeah, I, I can see how that would be. Or, no, look, Hugh's having a bad time at the moment. Let me talk to Hugh. I said, well, no, no, I, I can talk to him. That's fine. I don't need you to do my talking for me. But I just, mm. I just wanted to, you know, just make sure I wasn't completely off kilter here because Hugh just bit my head off and I don't know why. Mm. So, so always having those sort of those mechanisms in place I think can be tremendously powerful. And... And then if you can get, the, get to a point where conflict is productive, where, it's a, where it's, a, it's a really robust, confident conversation that you're having around things without ever taking anything personally, um, I think that's, that's probably the one parallel I would draw. Mm. Mm. Uh, what about, so let's say I, I'm trying to be self-aware and I'm trying to not just see the, the holes in your argument, but I know that you are not like that. You're my, you're my the veterinarian on my team and I want to go and discuss something with you that you're probably not going to like and I, I know traditionally you're going to react and, and think it's me and not the, not the fact. Is, are there any approaches or any tips or anything that, that could make that work better? Well, look, I, I think sometimes where there's conflict in an organisation, it's usually, and it's you know, the politics, it's that bad conflict. Um, this is a Lencioni quote that, that conflict without trust is politics. Mm. So I, I would go to trust. And Brene Brown has a great acronym for trust, and it's Braving. She's written a book about it. It's really cool. Um, and you know, we, we now teach it at Lincoln and it's, it's the B stands for boundaries. Um, and a great way to, uh, again, using one of Brene Brown's uh, terms, she calls it languaging. Languaging is so important because once the words are out there, you can't take them back. So the way she languages boundaries is she would say, Gerardo, it's okay for you to be passionate in a meeting. It's okay for you to state your case in a very strong, you know, um, emotional way. It's not okay for you to thump your fist on the table and it is not okay for you to talk across other team members. So let's be really clear on what the boundaries are here. You know, so, so boundaries is the first one. And if we have those conversations in advance where I can say, Gerardo, Hugh, we're just about to go off on this, this mission or this activity. It's, we're going into COVID-19. It's going to be a really tough period. I'm going to say these things up front 
because I'd rather have a confident conversation with you now and get any pushback now rather than having to pull you to one side because you've committed the crime. Let's, mm. let's have this conversation before we've committed the crime. Here's what the boundaries are going to be, you know, and, and then lay those out. So, so boundaries. R is um, reliability. So do what you say you're going to do. A is, account- is accountability. Um, and, and that is take, take ownership. Uh, v is vault. So V-A-U-L-T. And that is um, make sure that don't use what I tell you, Hugh, about Gerardo or, or about anything as currency to try and gain affirmation with another team member. Mm. Often happens. So, so often happens. Um, I is integrity. Choose courage over comfort. N is non-judgment. So our unconscious bias gets in the way hugely there because we've already formed an opinion about somebody. Um, but you've got to stay out of judgment. And G, G is generosity. So go into every conversation with a generous, curious mindset as opposed to a, you know, you're an asshole um, mindset. And, it, and if you, I think... So if I was working with a practice that had a lot of negative conflict, I would go to braving and I would say, where are we, where are we doing well? Where are we struggling? I'd put a B on one piece of butcher's paper, R on another piece of butcher's paper. I'd explain what each letter meant. I would then go to get people to go to one of those and have a conversation in pairs, work their way around the room in pairs and come up with examples of where we're good at boundaries and where we're not very good at boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd share those at a plenary level and say, okay, let's start a plan of attack. Let's, let's pick one a week, mm. one a month, and let's focus on it. By the time we've done all seven, you know, we'll be in July and we'll, be, we'll have covered all of them and, and you watch the conflict start to fall away. Okay. So, so it's not a, there's, no, there's no quick fix or short-term trick. It's, a, it's about making sure those relationships and the trust is there so that you can safely have those conversations. That's what I'm, yeah, look, what I'm hearing. Yeah, look, a quick story. I was working with um, uh, one of the large supermarket chains. I used to be a director at Aldi Foods. It wasn't, wasn't it was Coles, actually. It doesn't really matter. But, and it was one region and one of the store managers had a, uh, sorry, one of the, this region has 11 supermarkets, right? So, so a supermarket's big. It's 300 staff, 2,500 customers a day, 50 million turnover. Like they're big operations, one supermarket. So an area manager has 11 of them. And so... Um, with 11 stores, uh, they were they hated each other, like they were they were jostling for team members. They were poaching individual bakery managers and and deli managers, like it was just awful. And the culture was toxic. He got posted and he did nothing for two months except just observe. So he would wander around the shops and he would just look in and just get a bit of a sense as to what the numbers, who was trading profitably, who was struggling, all that sort of stuff. And the end of two months, he got them all together and he took them on Tough Mudder. Now, this is what happened on Tough Mudder. And I, this, is, this, is, this is sort of building teamwork, on, which is why we talk about team building exercises. They are powerful if you get it right. If you get it wrong, they can be terrible. Private Brown, my very first story, got it wrong terribly. So there's, the, there's two store managers who hate each other and one's stuck in the mud pit. Now, I haven't done Tough Mudder, but I understand there's a mud pit you've got to crawl. You probably don't, Gerardo. You've got to crawl your way out of. And um, so the little guy, the little store manager, he reaches down and pulls this big guy out of the mud. 
And it takes ages to get this guy out of the mud and they finally get him out. I think a few other team members have to come back and they form a human chain. They get this guy out of the mud pit. They've been best of mates since. (laughs) So the tension that existed between them Mm. was really quite superficial. It was founded not, it wasn't, wasn't the the conflict wasn't the problem, sorry, the, the issue at hand. The conflict was coming from the fact that they didn't like each other mm. because for some reason they felt like there was sort of some agenda going on. Mm. Once they'd got rid of that agenda, the, the conflict was still there. They still disagreed about stuff, but it, it never became an issue. Wow. I, I actually had a thought of like this yesterday. Uh, I went for a surf in the morning. We had a lovely, lovely, lovely morning. And there was a, a bit of a, a disagreement between two other surfers. And it went really, it got really ugly. I thought they were going to start punching each other. Typical surface stuff. One dropped in on another. And all right, I was swearing and knew this. And, and I, I had a moment where I sat there watching these guys and they were actually so similar. And I, I actually thought, you know what? You guys would probably be best mates. You are so freaking similar. <laughs> you used to be arguing about this wave that you stuffed up. But I, I actually think that you could be best mates if you just got to know each other. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> we, we talk about the iceberg theory. You know, the tip of the iceberg is the part you can see and beneath the waterline is all this other stuff. You know, in, in people's lives, they've seen so much and they've had such different upbringings and different experiences and different thresholds for stress and Mm. different fears and anxieties and, you know, and you've got to get beneath the waterline to see what's really going. I I always said I, you could never, you can never lead a soldier unless you really understand what's got, what's gone on in their life Mm. because you have to be a chameleon. Mm. You know, there's no one size fits all. And I think once you sort of reveal a little bit about yourself, they reveal a bit about themselves. You don't have to go do tough mutter. You can mm. just share a story about yourself. Mm. And we do it on Chrysalis where the first night we go around, I probably shouldn't say too much in case people listen to this podcast and they're going on Chrysalis, but we do an exercise. Um, and um, and it builds rapport, you know, mm. and people go, well, I didn't know that about you. No, I didn't know that about you. And all of a sudden there's a level of trust there that, that on the face of it's quite superficial, but the reality is that it's a building block. Mm. And trust is like that glue. You know, you can have... It's like the mortar between bricks. You can have amazing solid bricks that build a practice of all the people and all of the equipment and everything else goes into this brick wall as separate bricks. But if you don't have the mortar between them, Mm. if you don't have that glue that binds people, which is that level of connection that exists. um, Yeah. When Aldi first first opened in Australia, um, I was one of their first um, team members and um, I was a director and there were five directors and um, I used to drive across Sydney to have coffee with the other directors in the morning and then drive all the way back in peak hour to get back to my first appointment. And um, I used to think it was the biggest waste of time but I, and I knew all this stuff, you know, from my military days but it didn't dawn on me what, this, what the group managing director was doing and he just wanted us bonding. Mm. And we sat there and had coffee for 20 minutes and on the face of it, what a stupid waste of time and not very environmental. The reality of it, it was incredibly powerful and those relationships are still strong 20 years later. I find um, that social media is actually really good for that because it is hard to, especially if you've got a big hospital and a big team, to actually connect with everybody in the team on a more personal level. can can be really challenging. Uh, there would be team members that you you don't really know them because you sort of just walk past each other 
twice a week on, on shift changeover. Um, social media for that's actually really good because you do get that insight into people's lives. So now we're friends on Facebook and I walk in in the morning and I say, morning, Paul, I saw that hmm. your daughter did that on the weekend. Um, how is that? Or there's a risk. Absolutely. I, I, it's always, as a, long as you a, have that conversation to you, I think that's, yeah, that's right. If just as long as you have the conversation, otherwise it's not that good, but yeah. What's but, it? What's hey, what, like, hey, like, like say, Paul, I saw you did that on the weekend with your daughter. Looks really great. What, what was it like? Like, I think it's the connection that happens when we mm. have that conversation as opposed mm. to just reading it about what you did. But I, yeah. I, I take your point and it's super, it's so important now. I mean, it's part of life, isn't mm. it? Mm. Mm. This, um, I had dinner with this woman the other night as headmistress of this school and she was telling me that they've got a girl in year 12, so a young woman in year 12, who a couple of weeks ago, so she's practising for the HSC, right, practising, she's doing the HSC mm-hmm. 55 hours on social media in one week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a limit. It's kind of, it's a balancing act. How many hours are in a week? Now I'm just like, is it, is it 70? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like, that's, a, that's a full-time job. That's it. Like, I mean, what is she? Anyway, I learned math. But Paul, you, you've talked numerous times about, and you mentioned Lincoln and, and the programs that um, you guys run. Can you give the listeners who like, uh, because Lincoln is is um, you know quite well known around Australia. Um, can you give the, our international listeners a bit of a rundown as to you know what Lincoln does for veterinary practices and veterinary teams around Australia, or well, internationally, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Well, Lincoln only works now with with veterinary hospitals. Doesn't work. Doesn't have any other clients outside veterinary. Um, or maybe one orthodontist um, who's lovely, but she's she's been on the program for three years now. We have a, we have four levels of training. Most senior level is a three year program. Uh, it's a it's a longitudinal program because it has to be. It's from a cash flow point of view, it works. It also for for the client, but it also works in terms of getting that sort of uh, upskilling, coaching on the job back more skills, coaching on the job, back more skills. So you you have to do it over over a long period of time, getting together once every six months. Chrysalis intensive for four days. So that's the junior leaders. Uh, it's, all, it's all on our website. Um, the next level down is uh, emerging leaders, which is the whole team. So they get to listen to me like this. Mm. Um, so that's emerging leaders and um, there's a lot of practice to do that. And then um, the last one is Leading Edge, which is online, probably the best one for international students um, or international clients. Leading Edge, I do, not, I do not understand why a practice would not be doing Leading Edge. It's 52 video modules. Each one goes for 15 to 20 minutes. It's delivered by seven doctors, seven veterinarians. They sort of they do a suite each, a handful each. Um, four quiz questions at the end to make sure you've watched the video. Full accountability for the practice owner. It's really cheap. Um, I was talking to a practice owner the other day. She's gone for, she's gone. It's 250 bucks a month, I think for five vets to do the program. It's 50 bucks per vet per month. It's like nothing. And they have increased their turnover by over $100,000 in the three months they've been doing the program. That's a 5.8 FTE. Wow. Like it's just a total no brainer, but it addresses those things that veterinary schools don't teach. In fact, we're working quite closely with the University of Queensland now to, to get it in there. I'm working with the senior leaders of UQ and, and, and our plan is to, is to get into, they want to, in year two, they want to start this leading edge. Um, so it's an online delivery platform. Um, so you don't have to travel. It's fantastic. Um, and the guys that deliver that are so passionate about helping the industry. So that's what Lincoln does. It's such a, such a valuable thing 
even all the way up to the to the full full package when i listen to you talk and and workshops like this i there's so much that you that i listen to as a leader going yeah i should do that i should do that i should do that but it is a, as you said earlier it is that doing and the reality is that most of us i certainly don't have all the skills to do all of this effectively all the time and, and having somebody to to defer to or who's going to help you or say, well, why haven't you done that yet? We talked about it. Why? I, it's, I think it's invaluable. My wife, keeps, my wife keeps telling me, she says, why do you call it a leadership training company? And I said, because that's what it is. And she said, but no one knows what leadership is. And I said, it's probably true. You know, like there's this massive unconscious incompetence. Um, mm. People can't put their finger on why team members don't do what they're meant to do or why as an owner of a practice, do I always seem to be the one that can only get it, can only do it properly? And, and the answer is all leadership, but, but it's sort of, you mentioned earlier, Gerard's soft skills. I mean, they are so not soft, mm. like from being frontline infantry commander, they're not soft. These are the skills that bring people home alive. Anyone can fire a weapon. It's, it's not firing the weapon. It's having your mindset right. So when you pull the trigger, you can do what you're told when you're told and, mm. and think for yourself when you can't hear anything because it's so loud, you can't possibly hear anything. And having that flexibility of mindset, the agility to be able to change and, and the resilience to keep going, all of those things are just, these are unbelievably hard skills. This is the difference. I mean, a lot of people talk about the fact that emotional intelligence represents about 80% of your performance. I totally agree with that. Mm. You, know? you, you can be really smart incapable of actually delivering any result and you can be not that smart and just get a lot of stuff done you know you can even become the president of the united states Dale, I think. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> well, you you get this, high emotional intelligence i was just about to say there's a self-awareness issue there that I, <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe there's not maybe no, exactly he's extremely self-aware <laughs> We will um, we'll put uh, Lincoln obviously on the, in our show notes if anybody wants to check it out. I, I think it'll be well worth it. Uh, I think that's a great place to wrap up. I love that last little bit that you just said there about what did you say about firing your weapon? Any, anybody can fire a weapon. Mm. Anybody, yeah. anybody can do surgery. Anybody can fix a dog. But it's how you do it and how you think about it. That's that's the that's what's going to make the difference. Uh, thank you so much for your time, thank Paul. You I would much, love Paul. to chat to you again. Thank you for listening. Remember to go and check out the show notes at thevetfold.com. And if you like what you heard, go and tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening.